This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. From KCRW, I'm Justin Simeon, and don't at me, but... Kimberly Pierce gets to say Butcher she wants to. I'm talking to the Boys Don't Cry director after the theme song. Boom. Okay, so, hey, what's up, Kim Pierce? Hey, baby. So, for everyone listening, I'm Justin Simeon. I'm here with the fabulous Kim Pierce, who is known for many things, but the world found out about her through Boys Don't Cry, which is an amazing film that meant so much to me growing up. And most recently, of course, director of Chapter 4 of Dear White People, Volume 2. This is the one where Coco uh, has an unexpected pregnancy and um, all sorts of shenanigans pop up. Uh, But Welcome, Kim. How are you? Welcome to Don't At Me. I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. That is like as close to a podcast voice as I'm ever going to get, because I feel like you and I are going to go in, like all the way in. Like if you are a person who enjoys tea, okay, (laughs) who enjoys podcast tea, like, oh my God, they're saying things that like, I can't believe they're saying in front of people. This is the one to listen to because I already, the pre-conversation that me and Kim had coming into the booth is the jump off. So I'm just going to, I'm going to start with like the neutral safe stuff and then we're going to go in. Okay. Because the thing that I was so impressed by, the thing that I learned so much from you is um, working with you on the show is, I mean, you just have an encyclopedic cinematic mind. Like you can recall, you can and do recall so many details, beautiful, beautiful details from the history of cinema and, and and put it into your work. I'm just curious when you fell in love with the form. Like, when did that happen? How did that happen? How did we, like, get blessed by the fabulous Kim Pierce in our lives? Tell us. Oh, and thank you for the compliment. You know, I it must have been very early. My parents had me at 15, mm-hmm. so I didn't really have adults around. And I think that art, I mean, I know it seems like a stretch, but art really saved me. Yeah. It was everything. So the like minute, what age? Uh, I mean, I think I started seeing movies at like five, wow. six. Yeah. And, you know, whether they were, somebody was taking me or I managed to see it on television, I, I could just tell that the clarity of storytelling was going to be my guide. Mm-hmm. Because I think life was so confusing when I was young because I lived with so many different people that I remember always trying to figure out what story was wow. and what the story was. That's so interesting because I think we all kind of use story to self-soothe when we were younger. Yeah, I noticed what was happening at like five as I got a hold of a, a recorder. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and I started recording because I have I'm Italian and Jewish, and boy, do those women talk. Yes, non fucking stop. So they were I'm always black, so I can relate. <laughs> they would talk all the time, and I started recording their conversations because mm-hmm. I just wanted to replay it and hear what they said. A because there was some lying going on. Yeah. B there was a lot of gossiping, yep. and C it was just like this nexus of craziness, and so then. I would listen to it, and then I would start to see kind of the patterns, mm-hmm. and then they caught me doing it. Uh-huh. And they were like, why are you doing that? And I was like, I don't know, because I like listening to you guys. And was it, are, these, are these family members? Who are these people? Yeah, it was my grandmother, my aunts, uh, my my two aunts, and my great aunt, uh-huh. and my mom. And because my mom had me when she was so young, wow. they were just like girls in the car, and they'd get in that car, and they just gossip. You know what's so funny about that? My family, uh, my mom's side of the family is Creole. That's how they gossiped around us, and that's how they got us to not know what they were saying they were because they would just be loud 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 cavassi open okay but, but like, did you popped, learn had no idea how what could you not never, penetrate it and figure out what the, they uh, let me tell you something okay my mom who was the only one in her family to get a doctorate degree made sure i got my education no one including my mom had any desire to teach us a scrap of that language so that they could go on and talk <laughs> above the kids heads wow uh, for as long as possible. it wasn't mischievous it really was just like uh-uh they're not about to get all this tea not at five and six years old no man um okay that that's wild and i and i i feel i feel very similar to you like i feel like if i hadn't encountered the arts i don't know who i would be i don't know where i would be i mean i saw so many brilliant gay black boys in houston uh growing up my age that didn't make it out aren't alive you know didn't sort of get out of that prison of self-doubt um and i did because i was introduced to art at the right age what do you think you know, do you ever stop and think about the impact of Boys Don't Cry and all of your work, but particularly that one in terms of getting stories out there that weren't at all told before? No one knew how to do it before you. Well, thank you. Uh, I think I was really lucky. It was funny. I was going to say one of the first things I ever saw was Eight and a Half. Mm. And where there could have been an insecurity that came from being as strange as I was, I think because I could jump to identifying with straight white men, Mm. I could suddenly become Marcello Mastriani. Right. So that kind of helped me survive. And I think that that's what I brought to boys. Mm -hmm. So for me, just really simply, I was writing a story about a woman who was an eighth black during the Civil War. This is true. Um, And she was, uh, we have to be careful of the term passing, but it's old school. I'm going to use it. Yeah, she was passing. Yeah, so she was passing. So she was a... a, a, I can say it. uh, You can say it. (laughs) And and I can apologize for it. Um, So... Eddie, they were locking up anybody with black blood. Right. And so, and this is all true. And so she, they said, the Union Army said to her, if you pass as white, you pass as a man and you pass as a Southerner and you spy for us, you can survive. You can stay out of prison. Wow. Oh, my God. That blows my mind. Because, by the way, passing as a white straight man has always been the method of survival in America. But I digress. Go on, Kim. Um, (laughs) So uh, my teacher, who was brilliant at the time, said... This is a great story, but this is not the story you want to tell. You want to tell the story of somebody who passes again, forgive the word, Mm. because it's who they are. Right. So I was just like, well, I am fucked because now I don't have a graduate thesis project. And lo and behold, have you had this happen where if you're just calm and you do the right thing, Keats talks about negative capability. Mm -hmm, If you can mm -hmm. sit with the unknown, the movie gods will just deliver. You know, they do deliver. They take their sweet time. Yes. Okay? But after it happens, I mean, everyone, I feel like, you know, it took me... 
I first started thinking about Dear White People in 2005, and I finally shot the film towards the end of 2013. It came out in 2014. You know, to everyone, it feels like it was so quickly going from the movie to the show, but what they don't realize is there are so many iterations of this thing I've been writing. And you're right. I just had to kind of sit in it and just say, you know what? By hook or by crook, this will be my first. I don't know when that's going to happen. But if I start now, <laughs> hopefully I'll, I'll reach the mountaintop, you know, at some point while I'm still alive. And, and lo and behold. Well, but thank at the God time, for it your... Feels so, at the time, it feels like it's, just, it's taking forever. Well, it feels like it's taking forever, but I would say almost whatever our thing is, thank God for inspiration and thank God for patience. Yeah. Because you have to be inspired and impatient to get something done. Yes. But you isn't also... That, isn't that the rub? Like, you, you the, cre- the moment when you come up with an idea, you are... Like, I am just... I my skin is on fire. I'm itching. Like it has to get out now. We have to release this tomorrow. Where's the marketing? Where's the international campaign? Who's releasing this? And then by th- day five, you know, I've written a scene, and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like you sort of, it, it it is this sort of hurry up and wait process, right? But even for us, yeah. So I think in a weird way, it's mm. funny. It's a thing I've really been understanding lately. It's just. That wild persistence and desire fuels me. Mm-hmm. And then the, the natural obstacles that come in of either my own creativity or the world have often really benefited me. Mm-hmm. And so that teacher said, you know, this wasn't the right project. I was working the midnight shift and my best friend handed me this article from the Village Voice. The Village Voice oh. doesn't even exist. And I read it and it was like I adopted a child. Wow. It was crazy. You it, just bonded to that story. I just was like, well, because also at that point I was out. I was sleeping with girls. I was, you know, wondering if I was trans or, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't even have gender fluid as a term. We didn't have masculine of center. I just was like, well, I don't know. I kind of like to dress boyish and I like pretty girls. Masculine of center. I have not heard that one. That's Kim what Bears. I would call myself now. You are masculine of center. Sure. MRC. Yeah. I like it. But I, Am I allowed to call you butch? Is that a thing I can do now or no? Well, I don't. I think so. Here's the deal. Okay, I think so, so. Let's get into this. Yeah, all okay, right? okay. So we're entering a don't at me safe zone, ladies yes. and gentlemen, where you are going to listen to two people just trying to figure out life. If y'all start think piecing <laughs> us because because we use the wrong verb or whatever. I'm be so mad. You know what? I don't know. You can do it. It's a free country. Anyway, the point is, is that let's talk about these terms because yeah. have you read Sex at Dawn? Have we talked about Sex at Dawn? I've read Sex at Dawn. Okay. Yeah. And, and this idea I'm that, going through a whole polyamory exploration. Oh my God. It's like, it's a fascinating book and it, it just goes, it, it just points out that like the milieu with which mankind evolved really did not require specific genders or sexualities. We were sort of out here gathering fruit and hunting rabbits and just getting it on. Okay. <laughs> That's what we were doing before we began to farm and, you know, build towers and castles and go to war and be Christian. So, um, you know, that's kind of in our DNA. And now I feel like we're struggling to, to like, sort of reconcile what we are with what we've been saying we are. Um, that was a really long-ass speech, okay? We're going to cut it down. So whatever you heard, just imagine it being longer. And um, But the reason why I want to segue into is... We are struggling to to talk about what things are. Like I remember, you know, RuPaul recently getting into trouble uh, for using the word tranny and for, um, you know, sort of suggesting that trans people in drag aren't the same as drag and then had to sort of apologize because, you know, he was from a different era. And I remember watching that whole thing and thinking, you know... I I think it's valuable that RuPaul is doing this in public, but at the same time, I mean, none of us would be using any of these terms if it wasn't for Ru. Like, none of this conversation would not have a basis if we didn't first accept drag 
Um, what do you think, Kim? I've been talking for way too long. <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts. I, mm-hmm. I, I think the first is, you know, you had asked about Brandon. I think the reason Brandon spoke to me so much was I loved his desire to shape himself into his fantasy of himself mm-hmm. and to make mm. love to women and to go live the way he wanted. Yes. That, to me, was amazing. Fantasy of himself or who he was? I'm just curious. Well, let's say that our fan. I like to use the word fantasy of ourself, but it could be both and either. Right, sure. I tend to t- it's think, your ideal self. I think I, I, I think right. in terms of boths and eithers, yeah. right? Uh-huh. So it's just like mm-hmm. my fantasy mm-hmm. of myself is the person I want to be. Yes, the, Meaning the person I was meant to be, the person I really am, the person I should be. All of those things. They're all yep. multiple mm-hmm. versions of that. Mm-hmm. So let's say I fell in love with this person who took action around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And gave great pleasure and got great pleasure. Yep. And was, am I allowed to use swear words? Yes. Okay. Was just so motherfucking wild and yes. charismatic and crazy ass. Like, I just was like, I love you. Wow. So I fell so deeply in love with Brandon. Yeah. Everything about him. And then as I read more about what was done to him, I honestly could not conceive of it. Mm. I was so terrified and terrorized by it. That within, um, I just researched everything. There's like, people keep finding emails for me for those like five years. And I found a group called The Transsexual Menace. Uh This was their name. And they were going to go to the Don't at us. Don't don't at me. I didn't do it. That's who they are (laughs) back then. And and it's it's interesting because it was Kate Bornstein, it was Tony Bredonetto, it was Nancy Nandroni, mm-hmm. it was all these people who at that point called themselves transsexuals, male yeah. to female, female to male, and they said we got of course we have one ticket left. Uh-huh. So I bought somebody's ticket, flew, and we all stayed together for a week. Wow. And I was a kid. I picked up my video camera, and I just said I just want to interview you people. And I say people because I can't say guys, guys, girls, just. Right. right. Just I want to observe you and know you because I don't know exactly who Brandon was and how he lived. But I'm going to learn everything I can about you. I'm going to interview a bunch of butch lesbians uh-huh. and I'm going to take it all in. And I'm going to do the very best I can to service this human being and who they might have been. Right. Oh, that's so and that was amazing. And we went to the murder trial. So that to me was the beginning. And at some point, and this was such a wild thing for me. So Kate, and they're all now really famous, mm-hmm. right? They're all of kind course. of the, the yeah. people in the movement. Yeah, they're the ones who started it. So they, um, Kate said... Uh, I think you're a transsexual. And I said was, this to you. To me. Because I was like with my little butch haircut uh-huh, uh-huh. and I was all like lifting weights and I was like really tiny and tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I said, okay. I didn't know yes or no what I was or I wasn't, mm-hmm. but I'm not afraid of it. So I said, okay. And she said, I'm going to call you he for the next two weeks. And I was like, okay. And so then she called me he and she was like, see, you sat up straighter. See, you oh like God. that. See, that's your calling. Was it though, Kim? Well, but that's the thing. Okay. I was willing to play because <laughs> uh, I like playing. And I said, call me he. And if I like it, great. Let me see where I land. Right. And we did that for two weeks or so. And I don't know exactly when I figured it out. And, you know, when we separated, I cried because I had really fallen in love with this friend. Uh, and then over the years, it just became very clear. Again, and I, we have to say don't at me because the trans, the term transsexual, tranny, I am. I don't want to get in a position where I have to apologize because I think that that's unhealthy. I'm not going to use a term that somebody doesn't want me to use. Yeah, of course. I'm going to simply say that historically, my experience was that lesbians mm-hmm. in the East Village, white lesbians hung out with white lesbians. Mm-hmm. There was very little women of color within our right, group, the, right. and these were a lot of artists and academics, and there was very little crossover with, at that point, what people called themselves who were transsexuals, mm-hmm. and they said tranny. I'm not saying it. I'm saying that's what they no, said. No, they said they used, that was a word that people used yes. without um, 
offense yes. at a time. <laughs> so when I went to interview people, that was the term they used, so that's that's what I used. The interesting thing to me was over time, by being open to being that term transsexual or mm-hmm. trans mm-hmm. tranny or whatever I was destined to become while exploring Brandon, it became very clear to me that I, and this is only me, that I believe that there's a gender spectrum. Mm -hmm. I believe that there's a fluidity. Mm -hmm. I believe that some people are more male and more female. That's Mm -hmm. why the masculine or feminine of center makes sense to me. I found for myself, I'm fundamentally masculine of center, but I am female-bodied, and I love being a woman. Yes, female-bodied. That's what I am. Yeah. But I, but it's not. I'm not out of league. If every, every now and then I wake up and I'm like, maybe today I'd like to be a boy. Well, you know, I, I was. Um, Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I, I, re- I was reading the fabulous Sylvester um, uh, book uh, biography about Sylvester, the great disco king queen yeah. and what a voice. and that was the thing about Sylvester that confused so many people but also at the time because get, queer culture was just starting people were more open to it and that he was he was a man he was male bodied but sometimes he wanted to be in a gown and sometimes he wanted to dress like a leather daddy and that's just who and what he was and one of the things that I thought was so interesting in the Katie Couric trans documentary is they talk about there are genes in the body for gender, which is one thing, and there are genes in the body for gender expression, which are usually connected, but not always. And then there are genes in the body for sexuality, and they're all different. They're all different. So they can they don't they sometimes align. I mean, obviously, I think if we look at the whole of human society, you know, I think the traditional heterosexual male woman thing, that's probably what happens the majority of the time. But that's not the only thing that happens. And the fact that, like, all of that survived millions and millions and millions of years of evolution suggests that there's a reason for it, that there is a purpose for all of these versions of being human. And what I think is what I think is positive about these little faux pas that we all step into is that. I think at the base of it, it's a recognition that language is just not it's it's language is a way of communicating and thinking about ourselves. But it is it doesn't even come close to describing the ineffableness of being a human being and being conscious and being alive and everything that we are like there's it's you can't put it in words all the way. You know what I mean? Like there's no all the way. Yeah, there's no you can you can go some of the way. Yeah. But at a certain point, like all of the words fail you because what what's going on here between us is a little bit bigger than the language we have at this particular moment for all of the things that we are. And I, and the reason why I think that's an important... And maybe, may I just interject this? Yeah. Maybe they fail and they succeed us at the same time. It's, you know, it's exactly, you know... Maybe it's okay, that. This is not a plug, but truly, right. this is where, this is what we always get to in the Dear White People's Writers Room, is that, you know, the show is about identity and versus self, which oftentimes are at odds, but it's not like one can ever win. Because if you have no idea, if you don't have a name to call yourself... Um, you don't, it's hard to have an anchor in this world. It's hard but, to have an anchor in society. But having a language, having a name, and then mobilizing around it and reifying it and changing it, mm-hmm. it, it look, I think we were born, we, we are meaning makers. We yeah. were meant to make meaning as human beings. Yes. So yes. your show, people name themselves, then they rename themselves, yes. then they unname self, themselves, and then that to me is the process. So I think there's there's two things. One is when those of us who were of another generation say something mm-hmm. and get attacked, 
my feeling is to the people who are attacking us, I would just say chill out. And what do you, you, when you say of another, you mean like using terms like butch or tranny or things like that? Yes. Okay. And butch in particular is fine now, but say the word. And again, we're going to be careful because we don't want to get in trouble. But tranny or transsexual in my day, like I said, we used it and we did it out of love and respect. Right. So if I'm using it now out of love and respect, my feeling is if you don't want me to use that term, just tell me and I won't use it. Yeah. But I don't want to erase my history. You don't want to uh, pretend like there was a, like you've never said it, it didn't right. mean. Right. And yeah. I'm not a bad yeah. person for using it now. And I also think that the same, I would say language fails and succeeds us. It's like if somebody uses a term and somebody changes it, mm-hmm. I, would, I don't want to use the word correct, but they evolve it. What's amazing to me is it also means that human beings are evolving and mm-hmm. language is evolving. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I like that there were different terms before and I like that there are new terms now because we're still finding, we're still finding all it. the differentiation yeah. that you're talking about and we're finding what we are. And the big thing I want to focus on for me is... It's very hard to occupy, like you talk about Sylvester, mm-hmm. a place that is constantly changing and that is in the middle and that does not want to go to a binary. Right. I do not want to become a man. Yep. And I do not want to become a full woman. Right. I don't want to be on either end. You I like want what to, you are. I like what I am and I change every day and I move around. And that's hard to control and I think that's why the society tries to evacuate, get rid of that. Why is there such a violent reaction, do you think? I mean, I Because you can't because it's not simple. Because it's beautiful and complex, and I think that the society would really, it is easier for society to mm-hmm. say, you're this and you're that. We check a box. Yeah. If you want to be what I am, I call old school butch, it yeah. means I'm constantly changing, and I want to do that. But that's hard to keep up with. So can I go in for a yeah. minute? I feel like it really freaks people out when they don't have words for something. Like, it, it, it provokes a violent reaction when they can't when when a person doesn't have language for something that they see and i think part of it is because we all want to believe in this illusion of stability like what we learned is the way the world is what we've always understood is the way everything always has to be and if anything comes into that and challenges how we see the world you know there better be hell to pay because we are so addicted to defining things and locking them down and being stable when honestly I'm not even sure that's in our blood to do I don't even know that that's what we were made to do be think about what it takes for you to make your TV show Mm -hmm. to make your movie to write anything oftentimes we write and we rewrite right yeah and we act and we edit why because it takes time to find the right thing so essentially that's what people would rather it be but it, it was this it was A and then, or it was B. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be all these other things. So I think the work of the artist, it's the work of any human being. It, to make something right, to make something work, takes work. You know, I think that's, we're going to transition. I want to talk a yeah. little bit about movies now because, you know, for, okay, so Mother, is I th- I'd like to bring that up because I thought it was a fantastic film. I thought it was really challenging. I thought it was artful. And even if you did not enjoy the experience of seeing the film, perhaps you had a visceral reaction to the film that was uncomfortable. The fact that it was just so dismissed by critics, I found that to be very disturbing because there was a time in cinema where a film like that would come out. And even if a person didn't like it, there would be respect for the craft. There would be acknowledgement of the intention of the filmmaker. There would be a dissection of what they attempted to do and what we experienced in the film. There would be there would be a more robust conversation. But I think that, frankly, and, and listen, I was in this world. I was in PR for a, lot, a long time. A lot of the critics are, are former fanboys, you know, folks who grew up on comic books and, and are now sort of in this era of the 
comic book movie. And I'm just a little, I feel like audiences are kind of being taught to reject anything that doesn't feel familiar. And that scares the hell out of me because you don't get 2001 A Space Odyssey in a culture like that. And you don't even get Star Wars. I mean, a lot of people forget Star Wars was not like nobody thought that was going to be a thing. Like no, like the people working on the film thought it was a joke. They could only get two theaters to play it. It's opening weekend. I mean, it was not like nobody was checking for Star Wars. And we literally live in an industry created by that film. That film completely shifted us into the current paradigm that we're in. It has made billions of dollars. And you don't get that when audiences are taught to reject anything that doesn't feel familiar. And it, 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 it unnerves me. What do you think about this? Well, I have two two thoughts. One is it's exactly what we're talking about with gender, mm-hmm. right? Meaning if you want things to be simple, you want it to be what you already know, it's that male-female differentiation. Yeah. If you're willing to just say, hey, let me see what this thing is and be curious, that opens you more to the changing middle. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with cinema. It's, you know, if people only want what they've seen before, which I think it's reified when you have you know, these massive advertising campaigns. Because really, one of the reasons that we can't make movies that are... Look, I think we should have big blockbusters. I, I think they're too. great. I, I think they're and great, I, too. And I think that we... But it wouldn't it be great to have that 15 to 35 to $40 million movie that was just yeah. like a good old-fashioned story with actors and mm-hmm. things like that? But there, it's very hard to, A, spend all the money on that negative and then it's very hard to advertise that movie. And, and then there's no room for it because the bandwidth is too small. So, yes, people are saying... It has to come onto tracking already known. Yeah. It also has to have brand recognition. And but then on top on top of those two things, we also have to have a third thing. We have to have the boundary pushers. Like we cannot shame. I I, I we can't shame directors like yes. like you know Darren Aronofsky yeah. for trying to push the boundaries. We cannot. He like, won't be able to do it theatrically, and that's what scares that's, me. That he'll really, be able to do it on yeah. these platforms like like Netflix and Amazon or Hulu or whatever. He'll do it over the top. But theatrically, there's well, still something about it. That's what's killing me. So right now, the theatrical is just dying as an experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because people aren't going out to see movies other than what they already know. Well, I, I don't think it's dying. I think I just think it's evolving into something like a theme park. Like you just sort okay. of go, but, you yes. go and you turn your thinking offline. Yeah. I mean, these movies are so. Listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read any particular films, but the vast majority of these movies are the same movie over yeah. and over again. And listen, I came up in the Save the Cat era. I, for a time, that book was helpful. Okay, I have moved on in my life, um, but it's like Hollywood is stuck there. Like they're all the same movie, and sometimes literally they're the same. Like literally, it's a sequel to a movie, and the plot is exactly the same. Oh yeah, you know where it's gonna end with new actors, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe slightly revised CGI, right? And and audiences go and they just gobble it up. Right. And, it, and if it's mediocre, it gets, a, you know, a positive review because you can't really find anything wrong with it, per se. But I, that is not the movie going experience that I fell in love with. I fell in love with going, sitting in the dark, seeing something and then needing to talk about it with people in the lobby, needing to talk about it over dinner, needing to digest it, needing to go see it again, then needing to own it. This The, the relationship to powerful stories that cinema creates is it, it is being eroded and it's, I find it terrifying actually. Well also the beginning middle and end. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges and obviously we love over the top entertainment that goes on forever that you keep mm-hmm. serializing. Yes. But there's something amazing about a three act structure or whatever a five act yes. whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. It begins it has a middle it has an end every scene is different and when it's over it it kind of births itself in you, and then you share it with other people Absolutely. in the dark. And that isn't really going to happen the same 
when you're at home watching your television. Yes. And I don't have a judgment against it. There's, I don't but they're either. two different forms. They're two different forms. And I, and I, again, I just, we, we, Paul Thomas Anderson, Aronofsky, these directors who are still getting biggish budgets to make things that are quote unquote difficult or challenging. I just really don't ever want that to go away. In fact, I wanted to expand. In fact, I want to see not just straight white men getting to make really expensive art. I want to see you. I want to see people like me. I want to see... We're know, doing I, it. I want to see Barry Jenkins get $50 million to do something experimental. Um, well, I want to see Terrence Nance. Who, well, he, so Barry know. will. That Oscar is going to buy mm-hmm. him. I hope so. Well, it will. And he's yeah. a smart guy, and, and he'll use that to make something that really matters to him. Right. So, yes, I think the good thing about cultural affirmation is it then gives us, right, the cultural power and the money a couple times out to yeah. do something interesting. We obviously can't. We don't have the the ability to experiment and fail mm-hmm. as much as a straight white guy does, but we have a certain yeah. margin. And yeah. we have to, look, that's the bottom line. Well, we you just got to keep expanding it. We have to keep expanding it. That's why I want to protect theatrical and the theatrical going experience beyond the huge blockbusters as mm-hmm. much as I love them because you do want people to go out there with the little movie, the movie that was unexpected, the movie that does something different. People used to love it. People used to go They to do the... love it. They people do love it. Do. It's just yeah, very right. hard you're to right. get it out into the marketplace because the marketplace is so crowded. You're right. And, and, and the marketplace is becoming... Not just crowded with films, but crowded with advertising. So everyone yes. has to increase their advertising. And we should encourage yeah. Netflix and Amazon to allow theatrical, to allow that to burgeon because it is important. And I they can. Important. There's still a ton of money to be made on the other end. Of That's things. the thing. There's, you know, we're also upset. All these companies are obsessed with just making more and more and more. That like, it's like we can all like live, guys. We can yeah. all have money and live and be fine. Hold up, Kim. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back. You're listening to Don't At Me. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. And we're back with the amazing filmmaker, Kim Pierce. One thing that I'm finding exciting in the black space is that whether it is a surprise album drop by Beyonce and Jay Z, or or if it's Donald Glover's surprise, <laughs> this is America. Donald Glover, oh my God. Everything that is happening on Atlanta. There is a thing in black specific stories where I do feel like audiences are getting used to weird, esoteric, outside the box, artistic, almost like this is America is Brechtian. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it is Brechtian. And to introduce that kind of art form to popular culture, that is exciting because that feels like a lane where we can Trojan horse some really exciting stuff into. And you already are. And I and I just, I, I want everybody that is of a marginalized community, be that women, be that queer people, be that trans people, whatever, 
I want to see the Asian people like crazy. You know, I'm so glad that Crazy Rich Asians is coming out. But like, why? <laughs> it's like once in a decade we get <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Something like that. I I, I want more of these communities to feel that. I, I feel like Black people have a sense of urgency because literally being Black can be fatal. <laughs> um, but I want everyone to feel this sense of urgency because I think this is where the new art can come from. This is where like the next paradigm can come from, or these voices that sort of have never been able to speak to popular culture speaking to it in a in their on their own terms in their own way introducing their audiences to a way of watching that is new i mean that i just i want more of that kim what do we do well i I think i think you're doing it i think the truth is though these cultures in some ways i mean certainly black culture has oftentimes reached into the popular culture yes not in the it hasn't been represented to the extent that it should have been Mm -hmm. but it certainly has reached in my thing is i think that the People of color, women, queers, anybody who's telling a story that is not normative, mm-hmm. there's a reason they're being sucked up as much as they are is because I think that there's a boredom around normativity. Yeah. I think oh, it's yeah. like I've seen it and I'm bored, so I'm looking for something else. So while it may be satisfying a big part of the the culture, I think that we have something that is desperately wanted mm. and needed. And, 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 and not just out of like, do it because it's your homework. It's like it's fun to watch. Like when I watch Dear White People, I'm like... Keep doing things that I don't expect. Keep being wild. Keep pushing the boundary because you're entertaining me. Right. I'm not being entertained by the norm right now. Me neither. I'm just so... I mean, look... And so I don't consume it. I'm going to see some sequels this summer, but I I really just kind of want to skip all of them. Even the good ones. I'm sure Incredibles 2 is is incredible. But I just... Because it's hitting a beat that you've already... I just can't do it anymore. I can't do it. Hey, guys, it's the same movie, but with a woman as a lead. I just can't do it. But somebody has to break the form open and make that much money. Mm -hmm. Right? Half a billion dollars in a weekend. That's what it is. And then, right? Yeah. How do we do it? I mean, the thing is, you know... How do we do it? You just keep doing it again. It's it's what we do. It's... it's, 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 I think it gets back to this theme of don't go to the binary, mm-hmm. stay in the weird middle and keep it changing. Well, that's what I love so much about what Donald did with This Is America, because it wasn't like, oh, it wasn't part of any traditional release. Like there wasn't like it wasn't. An no, but album, look how it caught. An album didn't drop the next week. Right. And, you know, it was sort of after an SNL. He just sort of used the moment when he knew the spotlight was on him to just sort of give us something that was singular. Maybe it's related to something else. We don't know yet. But, like, it's a singular piece of work that is profound on its own terms. Um, I, I want to find a way to do that but but stay in theaters, you know. Okay, but wait. But listen, you yeah. just kind of answered your own question. He did something singular and brilliant and unique, and it yeah. was must-see. Yes. We all stopped what we were doing, and we saw it. Yes. Well, that's a reminder. Make something great and interesting and new, hard. and people so will show up. Hard. And yeah, then It's really hard to do that, though. You know, it's, like, really hard. I'm just kidding. <laughs> then we don't. Okay. Um, you got a list of questions. We have so many things to talk about. <laughs> it's like we're not even going to get to some of it, so we'll bring you back. Um, I, I do want to hear a little bit about what your what, – because you, you – um, we, we we love to talk about movies, you and I, and, and I'm just curious, like, what's on your mind right now? Like, what's new that's exciting you? What's old that's like in your in your watch list right now? Like, what are you what are you chewing on as an artist? Well, I sent you a, a, a little bit of it. Uh, I'm rewatching. I know, but we're gonna pretend like it's a we fresh, didn't know, we didn't do it. <laughs> Uh, well, so everybody's, everybody has seen Itu Mama Tambien. Yes, of course. Right? Yes. Everybody loves it. They've seen it. And then when you say, what about Jules and Jim? Mm, Jules and not Jim. Not everyone's seen Jules and Jim. People are like, wait, what? Yeah. And you're like, okay, all due respect to Itu Mama, which I love. Yeah. Jules and Jim was the precursor. Yeah. And it's amazing. That's how I feel about people who love Chicago but haven't seen Cabaret. It's like, oh. you need to know where this began.
again, sir yeah. or madam. Yes. <laughs> Cabaret's amazing. So you've been watching Jules and Jim. I've been watching Jules and Jim, E2 Mama, mm-hmm. uh, Annie Hall in Manhattan. Uh, when Harry <laughs> How, met Sally. How's that going? How's watching Manhattan right now? Well, you know, this is my favorite topic because I, I hate that I have a look. We have a very sophisticated ability to filter things. Yes. If you come up the way, well, also cinema people. It's like you know, doesn't mean that I'm unaware. Of, of course, things. no, but it's there is something there yeah. that is brilliant that yeah. ugh, is unfortunately tied to a lot of other things. Yeah. But I, I, I always feel very complicated, but not at all actually about watching films yeah. by problematic people. Go ahead, sorry. Um, <laughs> So I've been diving into the French New Wave mm. because the way they looked at sexuality and freedom and love of life yeah. was just, I mean, Breathless, um, Pierre Lafou, um, where should someone start? Where do you think someone should start with the French? Because I, I, I remember when I was sort of dipping my toe and it was, it was hard to know exactly where to start. Like what film? Is it Breathless? You can, but Breathless has a kind of ordinariness to it, so yes, I would it does. I would be careful about that because it's been so kind of codified. Uh-huh. I just I think it's important just to be very open. I wouldn't watch one; I'd watch ten. So give yourself a weekend. Yeah, give yourself a weekend and just allow yourself to indulge. Uh-huh. And I think if you look at Jules and Jim, just take in, you know, how beautiful she is and how wild she is and how much she kind of opens up the space. Mm-hmm. If you look at Viva Savi, you know, and Anna Karina, just watch her kind of discover herself. If you're going to look at masculine, feminine, you know, or Pierre. LeFou, like watch these for me in particular I love the men because they're so full of life but particularly the women are just like these these fountains of sexuality and desire and freedom and and watch how they run around a band apart is great mm-hmm. so they really were it was like a handheld it was cinema verite but there was a looseness to life and love that yeah. I'm trying to capture in my next film so I'm really indulging in it Ooh, tell me about your next film uh, it's a butch femme romantic sex comedy yes butch can we say any of those words I don't know well I don't know it's, it's so funny <laughs> Can we because say comedy? I'm, I'm confused as the rules right now. Can I? I don't know. Uh, can, the thing about Butch, it's so funny because some people, like, you know, a straight white man will be like, so you're a Butch? And I'm like, uh-huh. I just, are you a dyke? It, it and just, I'm like, it feels weird to hear it and they're, and they're like, can I not say that? And I'm like, I, I don't know what you can and can't do, but I'd be a little careful about the Butch dyke thing. But yeah, chill. I don't. You know? I'm not going to say it. You okay. can say it. I can say Butch, but that's about as far as I'm going. You don't say dyke. Stuff. No, ma'am. Okay. We talked about this actually on set. Oh, do we? I feel very uncomfortable using that word because it, okay. it was used so derogatively growing up that, like, I just, it, it, you know, it's like when I, I use the N-word in my work because I feel like it's life and I feel like it's real. And sometimes I feel like saying it myself, but I never don't have a reaction to hearing it. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's just like, because I remember yeah. all the negative times that I've heard it and and, and, and the words you just mentioned. I, I I don't think I have the right to say it. That's just me, though. And and I think, <laughs> and I that's how I feel about, mm-hmm. say, the N-word or other right. words like that. I mean, I think what was interesting for me is the word lesbian never made sense. Yeah. So I was always like, people would say, oh, you're a lesbian. I'm like, who, where, where's that person? Like, yeah. it didn't work. So yeah. I took Dyke, I took Butch. Um, well, just like African-American to me is a very weird word. Like it's like African-American culture makes sense to me because it, it was born out of Africans brought to America. Um, but I, it, it is interesting to me that there's like literally one group of people whose continent of origin is included in their description. But, you know, we don't do that for I, I just it, it, that it, it doesn't bother me. It just it's like I'd rather just be called black or mm. even though black isn't none, none of the words are particular. I mean, race in in its entirety is a, is a bullshit construct. But like um, 
I, black just feels more like what I am than African American. You know what I mean? Like, I, right. I, my African heritage was was taken from me, so I don't actually have an African heritage that I'm a, that I can trace back and be aware of. You know, like I can generally understand various different countries in Africa and what their cultures are, but I don't know what country of origin my bloodline goes to. So to call me African American, it never quite sat well with me. Mm. It always felt like an awkward way for white people to acknowledge race without using the term black. <laughs> but maybe that's what you should that's what they should call you. I'd like to call you I'm acknowledging race without using the term black right yeah, now. Yeah. yeah yes. That's kind of what's <laughs> happening every time, right? Because no one wants to admit that <laughs> no one wants to admit that they're playing by this rule system, by this rule book. And we all are. We, yeah. We, we all, all are. are. I mean, in ways we don't even realize. Um, okay. But I, I don't, I don't want to fail the audience if they're going to uh, indulge in the French New Wave. Yes. Because I think it's beautiful. You are so good, by the way, guys. Kim is so good about putting a list together, like a <laughs> curriculum of films. So I want you to talk about uh, this. Well, guys. I want you guys to fall in love with the French New Wave. And I also want everybody to remember when, you know, think about when's the last time that we saw a great love story, mm-hmm. a great romance, a, a great sex story. When do we see sexuality on screen? These are things I've been working on since the beginning of my career. Boys got an X rating mm-hmm. and I fought it down. Yeah. And I got that R. Yeah. But that's the thing is we, we will put violence on the screen, but we won't put love and sex. So. Yep. That's the thing that I'm really excited Which is about. Very telling of our culture. I'm so excited about your new movie. Well, you're the guy I'm going to bring it to to, to read oh, it when it's ready. Oh my God! Speaking of which, when we get off the air, you have to read my next script. Yes. Um, because I'm delving into the horror genre. So, yes. like, I've been. I want to put on. The, I want to make. I want to shine a spotlight on a film that is terrible for. The vast majority of it, and then it's suddenly brilliant, which is Halloween 3. Have you seen Halloween 3? No, I love Halloween 1 and 2, so but I haven't I'm obs- seen 3. I'm obsessed with Halloween but you're 3. You're going to shine a light on it. I'm going to shine a light. It's the one Halloween that does not have Michael Myers in it. It just stands alone. It makes no sense. It is, um, I think they were trying to go for an anthology series, but then the studio was like, yeah, but Michael Myers is working, so let's just make the sequel real quick. So people really didn't know what to do with this film. Um, but it's really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. It's just the acting is a little rough. Okay, the acting is real, real, real rough. We apologize to the actors for listening. Y'all know it. You know, y'all saw yourselves. Um, but it, it, and it's a little hokey, and it's about this, um, this Halloween company that's selling these uh, Halloween masks to children, and there's this really irritating commercial that plays this little jingle about Halloween time, and it's essentially like this commercial is just on repeat in everyone's home in front of all of these children um, to remind them that at a certain time on Halloween, everyone's going to put their masks on and watch the TV screen for a special surprise, right? So, cut to the end of the film. Um, I'm not ruining it, because you know something bad is going to happen. And honestly, I knew that this was coming, and it still was so amazing to me. At the end of the film, all the kids are, you know, per, per... the instruction from the televisions sitting in front of the TV with their Halloween masks. And you realize that the masks simultaneously across the world are turning the children's heads literally into worms. And it is the most horrifying sequence. It is so, it's bravura. I'm telling you, it just, it, it immediately in a moment after watching like an hour and a half of just hokum, in a moment, it it like has the most brilliant metaphor for culture and television. What's happening to the youth, and then and then at the very end, there's this little coda that it almost explains why these people are doing it, but not really. And then suddenly, the credit. It is the most amazing ending 
to a horrible film I've ever seen. It's not a horrible film, but it's like the most amazing ending to a mediocre film I've ever seen. So I, listen, you shining a light on, on the French New Wave, I would like to shine a light on Halloween 3, okay? If you are a horror fan, um, you can endure the first parts of the film. In fact, I think it's quite funny because the ending really, to me, is a masterclass in horror. Mm. Really how to instill like a true kind of dread in, in an audience because there's no way you can leave that that the ending of that film not affected somehow. It's so powerful. Powerful. So that's not as fun as like Jules and Jim or like it's fun, but it's not Horror as like is fun. it's not as like um you know sophisticated as like discussing the French New Wave and Anacruna. But I I it's, think you just it's at me. It's when I'm tripping I on think right you now. Just at me. No, no, Cam. <laughs> I'm, I'm all just, like fake I'm, sophisticated. I'm adding in your, in your white voice. I'm adding myself. Okay, <laughs> you know what? It, this is just my voice. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's not even a put on. It's just like uh you know I think uh, I've been code switching my whole life. So now they're they, they're just all merging into the same personality, I think, is And you speak in so many voices in the show, which it's is true. so, that's really fun. It's really true. Okay, so um, we're going to conclude with some don't at me's, which we talked about before. Okay. This can be random. This could be anything okay. that's on your mind, any controversial opinions. You don't get to at Kim about these. Kim, what should people not at you about? Tell me. It could be about anything, politics. Sunglasses. Give me a um, sense of like a don't at me. Like, okay, so like don't at me, but yeah. cultural like okay. I think I've given this one before, so forgive me, yeah. audience. But um, don't at me, but cultural being upset about cultural appropriation, in my opinion, is a distraction. Okay, cultural culture appropriates. That's the way culture culture is an unconscious force of nature that's like the aggregate of every human right. being you can't stop white people from being excited by things that are born in the black community and you can't stop black people from being excited by things that are born in other communities so it's not so much about like being upset about the appropriation part of it i get it it's you're righteous you have a right to be upset but it's a distraction the real problem is that we live in a system where um black voices are not credited for what they create and uh when a black person does something it's just not celebrated it's not as exciting as when a white person does it that's the real issue you know what i'm saying because you're just never going to win if you're going to like be begging kim kardashian for the rest of your life to stop wearing cornrows she's not going to do it okay she's not going to do it but maybe we can create more Beyonce, Jay-Z, Donald Glover moments where we recognize, okay, this black person created this thing and this is theirs and this is where it came from and let's celebrate uh, where it began. Uh, well, Hundo P, which is a term you taught me. <laughs> 100%. And I would say, don't at me, but I'm really glad that straight white women have come to the table mm. because mm. for years... Have they? Have they wait, all? hold on. Come to the table. Okay. Hold on. I didn't say built the table. Yep, let me, I'm I said already adding you. Let me stop. You're already adding me. Rules. But what I'm saying is, like, years ago... I was on those streets as a little queer kid, as a Jewish kid, or as a, you know, whatever. And and the, and the people of color were, you know, also, you know, fighting for their rights, our rights. And it was really interesting. I was in, you know, panels, and it, the straight white women were starting to kind of wake up. And it was Debbie Allen. Mm. And she, we were on a big panel, and she said, y'all need a movement to the white women. Wow. And the, the women of color were nodding, and the queer women were nodding. And now what I want to be careful about is I'm in these rooms and I go to these award shows and suddenly I love straight white women. 
But it's just like, guys, we've been doing this a long time. So, and I think we're entering into a period of a historicity where I just think that people don't want to look at history. Oh my God. Okay, at all. Hundo P. P, capital <laughs> P, exclamation marks. So please, I think it's important. If you're going to come to the table now, and the table has been made by people who have been fighting for years and years and years who have been marginalized. Mm-hmm. Right. And look, I have a lot of privilege as a white person, so I don't want to act like I've been marginalized to the extent that that perhaps a person of color is. But it's all it's all. But but I've been fighting a fight. And it's really interesting how I'm starting to see that the fight we fought is getting erased. Yeah. And I don't want it erased. Yeah. Like we need to keep that real. So, well, you know, I bring that up and I I don't want to be like, oh, I'm anti straight white women. But guys, we've been fighting this fight a long time. There's a there is to all the lovely straight white women out there and straight white men, honestly, there is this element to allyship that is troublesome in that if it doesn't affect the particular group, it doesn't get a part of the conversation. I mean, we've seen this happen a lot of times. It's why white feminism is a phrase, which I think women who are white probably have taken offense to. But the reason why the phrase has come up is because in these so-called feminist circles, the issues that are specific to women of color, women who are not white, which are also a part of, you know, the marginalization you read the of, article of women, of course. About that luncheon, yeah. Of course, you know. Um, this is with, uh, it was Selma Hayek and um, uh, Jessica... D. Reese, Jessica Williams, Jill Jessica, was But there. Jessica was the one who had, like, she and Selma kind of had a conversation. Anyway, not to, not to, you know, pull up all the tea. Y'all can Google that. <laughs> but, like... Um, the the point that I'm making is that, like, you know, in the same way in, in the gay community, once marriage equality was achieved, a lot of the rest of us felt like all of the white gay men who have amassed fortunes and who have become champions and leaders of this, of the gay rights movement sort of abandoned the rest of us as soon as they could get married. I mean, that's a real sentiment that queer people of color have. White feminism likewise came about because there's a lot of black women, Latina women, other kind of women who are like, the issues that you guys are talking about actually are different for us. And it feels like it's a different kind of oppression that like you guys are leading this feminist movement, but you're not taking us with you. <laughs> There's a brilliant uh, Brene Brown, who's a, a psych- mm, sociologist. You know her. her? Yeah, of course. OK, amazing. so her TED talk is great. Amazing. She, she also did something that was amazing on privilege. Yeah. The hardest thing for anybody to give up is their privilege. Oh my God, so yeah. we have to look at what, and we all have different privileges. And per, I, I would ma- say I have male privilege. You have male privilege. I have white privilege. Mm-hmm. And when we start to see that somebody wants to have equal representation and fairness, people perceive giving up their privilege as unfair. Yeah. When the truth is, no, 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 it was unfair that you had that privilege. And and she says that people are interpreting that you're saying it wasn't hard for them. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to acknowledge, and this is going to get me to this other thing that I'm up on the don't at me of, which is we have to accept that it hurts to let go of privilege. Yeah. We have to just acknowledge that because right now that's what straight white men are going through. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's a level of anger. And I guess because I'm in those rooms where I'm trying to I, – I don't want to see them splinter off. And it's interesting because I can see women saying to me, why are you kind of reaching across the bow? But only if we reach across the bow to them are we going to avoid a retaliation. Yeah. And that's kind of where I see – well, does that make sense it, in terms of the? Not only does it make sense, but there's another element to it too. I I think that not only is it, I think it's hard for anyone to give up their privilege. But I'm thinking specifically about you know white childrens, uh, in the bubbles where there aren't people of color, queer people, whatever. They're just sort of in a, a certain they're cultural in the bubble. 
because they don't see any other way of lives and they weren't taught about it, they don't know that they have privilege. So that's that's one thing. Which is already a blindness because the right. rest of us, I can tell when I have, at least I have some sense of mm-hmm. it, but yes, they but don't if, know. if you're raised in any typical, frankly, yeah. um, school system yeah. and, you know, where slavery is like a chapter and, you right. know, all that stuff, uh, you know, women's rights is a, is a paragraph, you don't grow up really knowing what your privilege is. Um, and so when you see all these people on TV or on the Internet, like, fighting for it, it, it does feel as if they're ungrateful or they're whining or they're taking something from you because you really don't have a visceral understanding of what they're talking about. You don't know that you took something from them yeah. just by virtue of... And what... not you, but like your ancestors. You're, you're, and uh, yeah. you're in a system that they created and we could actually change it for all of our benefits. But there's also a kind of envy, I think. I, I, I think the reason why we're still dealing with blackface parties and we're still dealing with like violence towards communities you know, that are different is because there's, there are these white boys who, unbeknownst to them, their ancestors traded a cultural heritage for whiteness. They traded, say, a an English tradition or an Irish tradition or a Greek, whatever it might be, whatever, you know, country of origin their family lines came from. Long ago, they traded all of that for just whiteness. And whiteness is is bland. I mean, it is, it's an idea that began in the 1800s. So it doesn't have, it just doesn't have that. It, it, you get Thanksgiving, girl, you get Christmas, you get Walmart, you get Donald Trump. You don't get much else. You know what I'm saying? It, there's, there, it, it's not rooted in, in the struggle and the pain and the realness of being a human being. It's rooted in this idea that we all came up with in the 1800s. And I think there's a real cultural envy. So not only do they see these people asking for rights and privileges that they don't realize that they actually have, but they also see them celebrating something that they have no relationship to. You know, whiteness in a lot of ways has stripped all of us of something that we once had. And I think once we can get more people to realize this, maybe, you know, more people will be willing to give it up. You have to work in people's self-interest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So how do you... Well, that's what I'm saying. You have to make people realize what they've lost. But how do they don't have? How how do they get what you have, which is you have a community, Mm -hmm. right? You have a language. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have many languages, but I have it even with my queerness. I have a a sense of self determination. It's all really interesting. Mm -hmm. They don't have that, but they have power. Mm -hmm. So, how do you get them to want to let the power go and share the power? Because they have to want to give up part of their privilege, right? Because Mm -hmm. civil rights, none of us get anything unless they're willing to give some up. But what are you offering them? Because you can't offer them culture because you you have the culture. Well, here's the thing. Right? (laughs) The the sad thing about it is that um, I'm going through this, like, I'm reading all about codependency right now. It's like the phase. What are you reading? Uh, Well, I read the classic Codependency No More. I'm reading uh, it? Does it help you when you read those books? It does. I, you know me. I'm always mm. reading some random uh-huh. something. And what I realize is like everyone I know is codependent, first of all. Uh, but, the, but the other thing that I'm realizing, it's like the big part about it is you really can't, you have to at some point acknowledge that you just don't have control. We do not have control over what these people think, over what they say, over what they do. We don't have any control over it. So obsessing over convincing them at a certain point is not useful. It is about, you know, and, and only because it doesn't work, not because like it is is morally wrong. It's just that when you obsess over controlling what a group of people think, as we can see right now, they just they just harden they do. more so, into what so they think. So do you just create more culture? Because you, that you really just, is where your you power gotta, comes from. You got to look into the spaces that are open and right. free and, and welcoming, that, and that's where you got to go. And also by creating culture, we think about it. We yeah. amass power. We amass real estate. We amass cultural influence. We're satisfied. Like that to me has been cultural production is really the place that we have 
changed everything. Yeah, and it's why it's why in this new season of Dear White People, um, I do we get to hear about it? You know, by the way, I think this will air well after. So you know, I just found out we got picked up, bitch. Yeah. Hey, season three. That's great. <laughs> I'm very excited. But um, I'm but, so excited. But what but what I mean is in, in season two, really, and just sort of in dealing with press and response, I just sort of made the decision, like, don't, there's no reason to respond to people to try to get them to understand what I'm doing or to try to get them to understand why Near White People is not a racist title or a racist show. All of this stuff, I, I have no control over it. Some people will never listen. And, but, and, some people and obsess- will, but some people will. will be open to the to the, the widening of their... But obsessing over the people who won't listen... That you shouldn't. That does not make me a better artist. No. It does not make them do anything. It doesn't make them see anything. It just, you know... And make this, more art. And I get that it's ironic because it's a show called Dear White People, so the assumption would be that it's two white people. But in fact, it's an expression of what it feels like to be something other than white, which is you're always feeling as if you're in response to whiteness. That's what the title's about. And if no, if, if there's a group of people who will never, ever, 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 ever open themselves to understanding what that show's talking about. And the difference between Justin with the movie in season one and Justin now is that I, I've learned to stop, to just stop. When I have that inclination to explain or to, you know, clap back or to whatever, like just to just just sit with it, don't press send <laughs> and let it go. Because uh, the more you obsess over trying to control somebody or something that you can't, the less power you have. You, you're giving away your power. But you did with your white people, similar to what I did with Boys Don't Cry. There was nothing in the world that kept me company that was a reflection of the way I made love mm-hmm. to women and the way I lived mm. in my body. Mm-hmm. So I made it. Yes. With my friends. Yes. And now, you what did it do for way. the world? It did hopefully great, you know, things for uh, understanding and empathy and all that. But it also made it kept me company. Yeah. So maybe part of your reason that you don't need to shut them down as much or, or beg them to mm-hmm. understand you is mm-hmm. the more cultural production you make, the more you have companionship in the world that exactly. is a reflection of who you are. And eventually, maybe they'll get it. Maybe they won't. Well, they're going to get outnumbered at some point. Girl, okay, so on that note. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I'm not even walking out of the studio. Girl, thank you so much for talking oh with me. Oh, my God. What and an honor. And thank you so much for, like, we literally, I say this every time, but you and I can honestly discuss the world all day long. So, Kim, before we leave, tell people where to find you, online, social media. Where, where, how do we find you, not to at you, but to show you how much we love you and to retweet you and to And I'm going to say you can at me a little bit because okay. that's part of like, like figuring it. out the language. You uh, like it in the conversation. You can find me on Facebook under my name. Mm-hmm. You've got to spell it right. Kimberly uh, Pierce. Kimberly and then P-E-I-R-C-E. P-E-I-R-C-E. And you can get me on Instagram because, but somebody stole Kimberly Pierce. Ugh. And may they give it back. Oh my goodness. So it's Kimberly with four Ps. Kimberly P-P. PP. Okay. And so everybody Twitter. at the other Kimberly Pierce and be like, yo, give it up. Yeah, just bring it back home <laughs> and then uh, Kim Pierce on Twitter. And then tell us about, should we, when can we, how can we follow the progress of the film? Do we have an anticipation of a date? Like, tell me about the film. We do. Uh, I really think uh, at the end of this year, I'm going to let you see a draft of it and I'm going to have some great friends look at it and then I'm going to put it together and, and make it. And Beautiful. it's been, I have to just say, you've been such a great inspiration just being around you and and just seeing you know how flexible you are and how you write and how you play with your crew and and your cast and it's it's just been heaven so oh thank you so much kim so good to have you thanks for being here thanks
I'd like to thank my guest, Kimberly Pierce. We could have talked all day. Our producer, Gina Delvac, recording engineers, Jake Gorski and J.C. Swadek. Special thanks to Vishnu Vallabhanani. Gary Scott is the head of programming and the baby daddy we all deserve. If you want to think peace me fine, now would be the time we are done. It's at jsim07 on all the things, but would you first please subscribe, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice? Your app of choice? Everybody's saying, like, you know, what's up? Why, why y'all only? No, we're on all the things, okay? Do it. Uh, even if you hate listening, you made it this far, so you might as well subscribe. Catch you next week for another exciting episode of Don't At Me with Justin Simeon from KCRW.